Well, tonight we come into a series of judges that we're going to handle tonight. I'm on there, right? Yes. And um, I also want to get into uh, Jephthah. Uh, that's a lot to handle in one night. Um, but if we could do all of Gideon. Do you guys want the other lights on? I don't know why they're off. Yeah, it seems like you guys are kind of in the dark there tonight. Yes, that's my job. Make sure you're all very illuminated. Well, we are in the book of Judges, and we're going to be looking at Judges 9, uh, 10, 11, uh, 12 as well. I'm getting really brave and doing lots of chapters. Uh, I'm doing this because, and it might take me two weeks. I don't know. We'll see how, much, well, how quickly this goes through. I might need two weeks to do this. I want to use the account of Ahimelech and Jotham here in chapter 9. We kind of introduced that last week, and I tried to kind of uh, tack it on to Gideon as the outcome and the horror that was involved in losing pretty much all your sons um, as soon as you die to one of your other sons. And so um, when we say that, of course, Jotham is the exception um, that survives this. And the difficulty I have, remember, I wasn't going to study the whole book of Judges. I was really looking at the individual judges, and I have a really difficult time identifying Ahimelech as one of the judges of Israel. Um, he did certainly rule over a portion of it, uh, specifically the region around Shechem, for um, three years, give or take. Um, but uh, again, from the indication that's here, Shechem isn't necessarily uh, a... a Israelite town at this point. They're really uh, given over to Baal Barith. Um, and Shechem, if you go through the book of Joshua, one of the interesting um, things that's missing is they never conquered this town. And so the account about Ahimelech and his reign is very localized. It really only evolved about four cities there in that region around Shechem. And so it was, from the indication we have, there wasn't this purge of the Canaanites out of the town, but rather kind of a cooperative nature there. Um, and so we aren't surprised to find that um, at the, toward the end of Gideon's ministry, uh, it says that they played the harlot with Baal Berith, their god. Um, and Baal Berith, um, that was in chapter 8, verse 33, thank you. Baal Berith is the god of Shechem, that Baal. And so um, this was, they quickly went back to Baal Berith, even while Gideon was alive, um, because Gideon, of course, was snared by his own ephod that he made, and we talked about that last week. And so this is very regionalized, um, where Ahimelech is identified, and uh, he's going to, tell them that not only am I a descendant of Gideon, but I'm a descendant of the people of Shechem, which tells us where Gideon had gotten this servant girl that he had uh, birthed Ahimelech from. And so she was a Shechemite. Whether that means she was an Israelite or not is difficult to tell. In fact, probably not. She was probably a Canaanite. And so I want to 
have us understand that because that's going to influence how we understand Jephthah. Because Jephthah was very similarly um, half-breed. He was not fully Jewish and he was rejected um, as well, much like Ahimelech was. Um, we don't find a declaration of his rejection, but it's obvious in his animosity towards his brothers that they either looked down on him or he just felt um, or considered himself um, to be in uh, conflict with them. And so there's that facet that I want to connect Ahimelech to Jephthah for us to really understand that. Um, the other reason I want to use chapter 9 to jump off of is Jotham. Um, he is the other character, the other son of Gideon that survives the assault. Um, and so he's, he gives us a um, parable, it's described as here, a story. Um, and he holds the men of Shechem and the region uh, to bear upon, have you really been honest in your dealings with Gideon and remembering his work for you? And he's going to pronounce on them a curse or a blessing, depending upon what's going on in the heart of the Shechemites in doing what they did and making him elect their king. And so the question is, is who's the judge in this account? Um, if Jotham becomes a judge, we have very little information about him, um, and we find him certainly uh, calling the people to do what is right, which is similar to a judgeship, but we do not find him engaged in any military conflict. Ahimelech is the other side. We find him engaged in military aspect of the judge, but not in the leading Israel into righteousness, in, and we find no evidence that God was ever approving of Ahimelech. But we do find evidence that God was approving of Jotham. And if Jotham is considered the judge here in Judges chapter 9, he is what I believe a good introduction to understanding uh, some of the other minor judges that we have at the end um, I'm sorry, at the beginning of chapter 10, at the end of chapter 12, where we have uh, five minor judges that we really have almost no information about um, anywhere else, and very little information here. We're talking about one verse per judge, uh, maybe two, I think, in some of the later ones, and we find little information about them. And so I really want to take these two characters. If I don't get to both of them, I'll use the other one next out of chapter 9 next week. So if we only get through one of them and not the other one, that's okay, I'm ready for next week. Or I, if, if I can talk really fast, we'll get through them both. Uh, but that's a lot of content, and really it's heavier on Jephthah. So I'm kind of going to start with Jotham and uh, talk about him and the minor judges and then use Ahimelech next week to really get into Jephthah. Yeah, I'm still, still deciding that even right now. If that's the way I want to go with it. Um, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> we're going to be talking, when we talk about Abimelech and um, Jephthah, we're really going to talk about the whole aspect of how violent the role of judge often is. And um, we're going to be really focusing on that facet next week. And there are some, probably, unless I can get through the minor judges very quickly. And so, let's look at Jotham's uh, curse, really, was it what it becomes, but his challenge to the people of Shechem and to Abimelech, his own half-brother, 
Uh, and that begins in chapter 9, verse 7. It says, When they told Jotham, that is, that Abimelech had been made king by the Shechemites, um, that he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and cried out. And a very, if you don't know who what Mount Gerizim is, that is the mountain and the other mountain on the other side of this valley where Israel, after they had conquered enough of the land, set themselves up where half the tribes over here and the half the tribes over here and they shouted the blessings and the curses back and forth. You know, and, and where they affirmed the covenant in the days of Joshua, well, this is the mountain. And so this is one of those two where they went back and forth with the curses and blessings. So he stands up on Mount Gerizim, and this is what he has to say to them. He says, listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, what? Should I cease giving my oil with which they honor God and men and go to sway over trees? Then the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit and go to sway over trees? Then the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Should I cease my new wine which cheers both God and men and go to sway over trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you anoint me king as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. But if not, let fire come out from the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you have, made, if you have acted in truth and sincerity in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubal and his house, and have done to him as he deserves, for my father fought for you, risked his life, and delivered you out of the hands of Midian, but you have risen up against my father's house this day and killed his 70 sons on one stone and made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the men of Shechem, because he is your brother. If then you have acted in truth and sincerity with Jerubal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled, and he went to Be'er and dwelt there for fear of Abimelech, his brother. Now I want to take you to the last verse of chapter uh, 9, which is verse 57. Let's go and back up to uh, verse 56. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers, and all the evil of the men of Shechem God returned on their own heads, and on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal. And so here is our judge um, that I'm going to kind of stretch into reflecting some of the minor judges as well. Having escaped this because he was hidden, and whether he hid himself, um, it... it, it, it he had hid himself, it says, there at the end of verse 5 of chapter 9. He had hid himself when the attack happened. And you think, well, this is a coward. No, he understands what's going on. He hides himself, succeeds in surviving this assault. They cannot locate him. And this isn't an assault where they're just randomly killing everyone. They are one by one slaughtering them execution style on one stone. Okay, that's how it's done. It was very deliberately done. It was done by not only Abimelech himself, but remember that the people of Shechem 
funded him to go out there and find mercenaries. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit more when we get to Abimelech. And so now Jotham, who survives, stands up. He's off in the mountain, but within hearing. Uh, and these kind of acoustics are out there. Um, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus Christ spoke to a huge crowd, um, and there's a, there, if you go there today, there's a little uh, Catholic shrine kind of thing there, um, building. And uh, our guide had another name for that. It wasn't the Church of the Beatitudes. He called it something else. Um, wasn't very nice about the nuns that keep it. Um, but uh, off to the side, fenced off and not even considered part of this um, site, um, there is a bowl a valley right off that little mount. And when you think of mountains, we think of like Sandia Crest. Um, no, not that big. Uh, there are no mountains in Israel like that. Um, probably the closest thing would, would be in another region um, out there in Horeb um, is a tall mountain. Um, and uh, some place where Elijah was where he overlooked the Megiddo Valley. But by and large, these were small hills we would consider them, but they called them mounts. And... Uh, and they did an acoustical study of this bowl right off the lip of this ridge, which is interesting because it's just beyond where they are set up this shrine to, for the Beatitudes, for the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, so it's actually outside of the, <laughs> of the border of this property. Um, and they set up acoustical equipment. And they said, you can hear everything from right up on that ridge in this entire bowl. And so the acoustics are there. And so here on Mount Gerizim, very similar, you have some excellent acoustics. This man lifts up his voice, and he has this description for them. And, and this account. And he's basically challenging them with, have you done what's right? You want someone to lead you, but none of us, none of us legitimate sons of Gideon were interested in leading you. And he is, now remember, Abimelech, his claim was, do you want one man to lead you or 70 men to lead you? That was his claim. And none of them are related to you, but I am related to you because my mom was a Shechemite. Their moms weren't, um, is the indication. So do you want those 70 people over you or just one person? And do you want strangers over you or a blood kin over you? And so Jotham comes on the scene, he says, well, first of all, in the, in the account of the story, he's like, none of us wanted to reign over you. If you had come and asked us, we would have turned you down. And he gives the account of the various trees. They had other things they were doing. They had other purposes in life. And there's, the indication here is that none of the sons of Gideon, from Jotham's perspective, had that as their life's ambition to rule over anybody. And this is going to be very common uh, indication of many of the minor judges that we're going to look at. Let's jump ahead and look at some of them. What were their children doing? In every, not every, but in many of them, they talk about their children. So let's go to... Chapter 10, and uh, look at the first five verses here. It says, After Abimelech there arose to save Israel, Tolan, the son of Puha, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he dwelt in Shamir in the mountains of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried in Shamir. 
Um, that's all we know about this guy. We don't even know where Shamir is today. We have no idea where this town is. Uh, we certainly know where Ephraim, the mountains of Ephraim, are. And so we have very little information about it, but I want to keep going. It says, after him rose Jair, a Gileadite, and he judged Israel 22 years. Now he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They also had 30 towns, which are called Havoth, Jair, to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Camon. And now let's go to the uh, end of chapter 12, verse 8. It says, after him, that's after Jephthah now, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and he gave away 30 daughters in marriage. How many kids did he have? 60 kids, 30 and 30. I guess when you get those numbers, you start hitting the odds, right? The 50-50 percentages. Uh, and brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere for his sons. Uh, so he had 90 people there. Um, and of course he gave away $30, so that would make 120. He judged Israel seven years, pretty short. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, is it his sons? No. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel. He judged Israel ten years, and Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried in Aijalon in the country of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 young donkeys. He judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died and was buried in Pirathon, in the land of Ephraim, in the mountains of the Amalekites. And so we have all these, and what do you notice? That, that what, three out of the five minor ones, what are we talking about, their children? And what does that give us an indication of? Well, maybe to us not, we're like, boy, he was just had a lot of kids. But this was a, a evidence of God's blessing, an evidence of wealth, um, and an evidence of rulership. When we find these children riding on donkeys, the whole idea, and in fact, in um, the second one here, um, Jair, right? In Jair, um, the Gileadite, he even assigns each of them a city. And so each of you are going to have a city to rule over. Um, and uh, so he divides up the region for them. But we have no indication that after his death that they did that. In fact, it says that once he was buried in Canaan, the children of Israel did evil inside the Lord and served the balls. And so he had to turn over. So there was not a successful second generation in any of these. But we have the second generation evidence. And so these men um, judged Israel. And, that's, and Gideon becomes an example of that. And Jotham is referencing this. Does not mean that their sons are meant to become judges of Israel. Each of three of these five minor judges that we don't know very little about, what we do know about them is they had lots of children. And they rode on donkeys, which is an, is an indicator to us that doesn't mean, to us it's kind of insignificant because you should ride on majestic Arabians or some horse like that. But this was a sign that they were taking a, a royal position, but it was not authoritative over people. It was rather a... a designation that their father was well-respected, had done much for Israel, and was well-treated. And so he had many children. They rode on donkeys to indicate that they were part of the 
judge's family and should have that respect of the community and the cities that were involved, the tribes that were involved sometimes. And so Jotham's statement here is that if you had come to us, when he is comparing these other trees to him and his brothers. You know, you come to us, that wasn't our role. Did we have your respect? We thought we did because of our father, and look at all the things our father did. And each of these minor judges, um, when we, why talk about their children? Was, well, that's to communicate to you that during their life, God had blessed them and the people recognized them. And so they, their sons were given that kind of respect that was generated really from the fathers. And so Jotham here is going to use that, that uh, Middle Eastern understanding that when you have that many children, uh, you have them in, the, in a place of, of, uh, of blessing and ex- exaltation we find that that is really their way of designating uh, their honor to you. And so Jotham here is saying, you know, this isn't about us. This is about our dad. We weren't the ones wanting to rule over you. Abimelech was. We were in the places we were at. We were honored because our dad was honored. And so now he's going to call the people of Shechem. Are you treating my dad fairly and how you sided with Abimelech and slaughtered his sons. And this is the question. Uh, now Jair did divide up and give each of his sons a, a city and we find that clearly there. But we don't find any other evidence that any of these other judges, and there are uh, sons of judges, took on that role. We just don't find it. I mean, there's a lot of them. We've got I mean, they don't not measuring them by two or three or four. You know, some of you think you got big families. You know, Maria, you're going to have what four, five, or six whenever you're done with this pregnancy. Is there just one? You know that that you did the little because yeah, okay. So four. Well, that's a lot of kids. I remember walking around with my four kids. Oh, how do you have so many kids? Um, I remember as a sibling of five walking around. Oh, you have a huge family. Well. Try 30 or 40 boys plus the 30 girls um, and dealing with that. And so this was their evidence that they were honored, respected, and that God had blessed them mightily. And so Gideon becomes the, the, almost the patriarch of that uh, attitude in this period of time. And so Jotham calls him to this. Says, this is about God honoring Gideon not about elevating us. We just, re, we're in the shadow of our father. And the question isn't, what did you think of us? The question is, is this the way you honor Gideon and what he did for you? Because how you treat his children is still showing something about what you think of him. And that's the challenge he's bringing forward. And so this is going to come into all to, to most of these three of the five minor judges here we're going to find that we're going to keep talking about their children, their sons. They had all these sons. God blessed them, and they were in honorable places among their people. And here Shechem should have sustained that. There's no evidence that these boys wanted to rule over anyone. 
Um, when we look at Gideon's ephod, and there, um, again, there was um, uh, some evidence that it became a snare not only to him, but to his house, which means all of these young men. Um, but it, when we look at verse 33, as soon, uh, verse, uh, chapter 8, it says, As soon as Gideon was dead, the children of Israel again played the harlot with Baals, made Baal Barith their god. And so this was them sliding. So there was no indication that any of these boys were taking up this responsibility, this role. But rather, it was Abimelech who made this false claim that the 70 sons of Jerubbaal want to reign over you. Well, Jotham says, that's not true. We have other things. We have other ways to serve and to live. Our, our father put us in a, in a good position. We don't need to rule over any of you. And in fact, he says, and he compares them to the trees of the, that, that come and want a ruler over them. And he says, and obviously he's comparing himself and his siblings, his brothers, to the fig tree, to the vine, to the olive tree, and says, you know, we would never have taken that on because God didn't call us to that. But you went to a bramble, you went to a, a pricker bush that's really only of any value to anybody once it's burned. And we're going to talk about Abimelech being the burning element of judgeship, but and so he says, you go to someone that's not worthy of it. I mean, can you imagine a majestic oak or a big uh, sycamore tree coming to a bramble? And look what the bramble says, come under my shade. <laughs> it's, a, it's so ironic. It just The whole point is to make you laugh and say, well, that's stupid. Why would this tree that produces shade and is a real tree go to a bramble, which can get pretty tall, six, seven feet, and the bramble says to them, take shelter in my shade. It's absurd. And that's the whole point. Jotham's saying, this is absurd for you. You had his 70 legitimate sons who were in honored positions and honored by Gideon. And you have the one illegitimate son who had nothing of your interests at heart, who just wants it for himself. He wants to... and. and he starts off his whole reign by slaughtering these honored people. These are honored people because of their father. We honor the sons. Not that the sons wanted to rule, but we just honor them. Have you honored them? How did you honor my father by slaughtering his sons? How is that honoring to him, to his memory, to commemorate all the things he did for you? And so now he's going to boil it down to the real things. What's really going on here? And he's asked this question, what is really going on here? And he brings it into why do you want him as your king? What is, is this really that you want him to rule over you? Or is it just that you wanted an excuse to get out from underneath the shadow of Gideon? Did you really want him as your king? Or, in other words, and so he asks them, is this sincere? Do you really want a king? And so he curses them, and he says, if you really wanted him as your king, then fine, you guys be happy together. You deserve each other. But if you're just scheming to get out of the shadow of Gideon so you can do whatever you please, then let 
this relationship between you and Abimelech be self-destructive. You're going to destroy each other. And, of course, that's the end result. Because what they're doing isn't honest. They knew it. They conceived this thing not because they saw in Abimelech all the qualities they wanted as a king, but they simply wanted out of the shadow of Gideon. And Abimelech knew this. And that's why he comes and says, do you want 70 of his sons ruling over you or just one of me? I'm a person, and it's almost, you know, do you want to deal with those guys, the honorable people, or do you want to deal with me, just one person? That, and you can imagine in their minds, the people check them, well, we can control, manipulate one guy, but how do you deal with 70 noble, just, righteous, somewhat, um, comparatively speaking anyway, uh, versus this one guy. And so they make this deal, and of course the end result is the destruction uh, of both because of the curse of Jotham that brought into challenge what are your motives in all this? What are your motives in helping Abimelech slaughter 69 of his 70 brothers? They aren't noble. They aren't honorable. They aren't right. They don't Get, they, they, they reflect that you don't value what Gideon did for you and the deliverance he made for you and the judgeship that he had. And so when we look at these minor judges, we don't know a lot about them, and three out of five, the only extra information we have about them is their sons. We also know they died and where they're buried and, and things like that, but, but we see that this is evidence of God's hand on them. And while... And in, uh, in especially in, in two of their cases where they weren't followed up by another judge right away, we find that as soon as the judge died, we don't find the sons taking over the role, but rather their existence is evidence that their role was honored by God and should have been honored by their community. And in fact, like I said, for two out of these three that mention the sons, the next generation, as soon as the judge died, what happened? The people went back to serving Baals. So the sons obviously didn't take over the role of judgeship. And even for the one that is followed by another judge, this, this, the next judge after him wasn't one of his sons. It was another man. And so we do not find this generational, this is an inherited job that you get from your dad. This is not a monarchical family line like we're going to find under the the line of David. That's not what's being established in any of the judgeships. And so Gideon wasn't passing it on to his sons. And Jotham's statement is that's not what was going on and you don't understand the role. you got to wait for God to call you. These other minor judges had sons too, but it wasn't passed on to them. God raised up these judges on an individual basis. Um, and so... Yes, they had children. They even had grandchildren. The one that talks about how many grandchildren he had. Um, and even the grandchildren were honored because he, he was, lived that long uh, or was that old when he started, one or the other. And we find that uh, this was a means of recognizing the honor that God had placed upon them and therefore how you treat their sons um, displayed whether or not you had forgotten their father or remembered him. And uh, there are still some individuals that I know their father, and I don't know them. And I will be a benefactor to them because of their father, because I knew them, and I 
and I honor them, and they were godly men, and, and, um, but boy, you struggle sometimes um, with the sons making choices, but I don't uh, believe that they have an inherited right to become a pastor because there's a pastor's son. And uh, we have, I know that the, the uh, national rep for the GRBC is a multi-generational pastor's pastor, pastor's pastor, you know, I don't know how many generations they go back that they have pastors every generation. But that's really not an expectation of God, nor is that anywhere um, represented in the New Testament. Anywhere. Um, We find, rather, that God has to have a calling on these. And so, um, have I encouraged or pressed or or, um, uh, any of my children into the ministry? No, not any more than any others in the church. God needs to call us into ministry, and we wait upon that, and we don't think I'm the heir apparent to the ministry of my father, and we have a lot of ministries today doing that, Uh, and that's why I mentioned Franklin Graham this morning. I have been very wary of that man because he's Billy Graham's son. And that's not a reason to disqualify him, but it also is not the reason to qualify him for the ministry, just because you're somebody's son. Um, And so, um, in fact, at this point, I probably have more respect for Franklin than I do for his daddy. Um, But um, we find that a lot of ministries are being turned over to the sons, inherit it from the fathers. And that's going on in GRBC churches as well as other denominations and the big mega churches turning over these dynasties of ministry to their sons and grandsons. And that's really not uh, presented to us as something uh, in the New Testament. The calling of God is on an individual basis, just like God has no grandchildren. Um, God has no grand pastors. Um, that is secondary, second generation. You need to have a calling of God on your life personally for ministry. And uh, not just taking up the family career choice, uh, family vocation. No. Um, God wants who he wants. And so Jotham here is a good example. And yes, all of these judges that are described, these minor judges, had huge amounts of children. But that didn't qualify any of the children to be judges themselves. And in fact, Abimelech is the only one that we find that tried to be, and he was terrible. He was horrific and evil, and he started off his whole thing by murdering his brethren. And so not exactly a, a calling of God moment there, um, where he goes and gets funding for mercenaries from dissatisfied people who had already forgotten the great sacrifice Gideon had done for them. And, but we recognize that God, um, that we have a responsibility to honor the Father, uh, even into the children. There's a great study that I was trying to get a little bit more data for us. Um, I wanted to lay it all out, but I, I, I just want to share it in general terms. Um, there was a, a genealogical study of two men, John Wilkes Booth um, and Jonathan Edwards, of what kind of children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-great-grandchildren, great-great-great-great. What happened to those two lines? I think it was John Wilkes Booth, I'm pretty sure. It might have been Benedict Arnold, but I think it was John Wilkes Booth. Um, And they went through all of this, and you see out of this line, all of these 
pastors, um, attorneys, that was back when attorneys were good, um, doctors, senators, things like that, all out of Jonathan Edwards' line. Then you look at this other line, you find traitors and criminals and slavers and all out of this line. And it kind of reminds you going back to Genesis where you have the line of Cain and the line of Seth. Um, one wanted, and, and yes, it makes a difference. And so um, when you see a generation cut off like this by one man and one community, that's, it, it's disturbing. Um, the evidence is that God wants to pass on that you, know, you serve the Lord, he wants it to go generationally down and have you be a blessing to many generations. And again, some of this is Gideon's fault. I'm not releasing him from responsibility because he let that ephah become a snare and, uh, and that poisoned his line to a degree, certainly. Well, to a, you only have Jotham left by the end of Judges. You only have Jotham among that number. And, uh, but we have an obligation, I think, to future generations to live righteously, justly all our days and to recognize that when we look back at your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, that there is substance there that needs to be honored, that we need to honor in the children and grandchildren. And do they live up to it always? Are they called to the same thing? No. But there's a difference between honoring them for their lineage and honoring them for a calling. None of these men, none of these boys, none of these sons and grandsons um, from any indication in the book of Judges were called to become judges. But that didn't mean they didn't ride around on donkeys because they were honored because of their father or grandfather. Um, and then they had to live their own choices by and large. So that's, uh, just want to put that challenge out tonight in the study of, the, of these minor judges, um, the five, and then I believe Jotham becomes the judge of that period, not Abimelech, um, because God honored Jotham's words and judged Abimelech. Men lifted up Abimelech. God honored Jotham's words, and that curse made happen. Um, in his day. And so I would count Jotham as the judge here, not Abimelech. Okay? Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word. And we pray that you might uh, just remind us of your promises that if a man lives righteously and justly and follows after you, that you will remember that for generations to come. But that each one of us also have a charged to not just live on the deeds of our forefathers, but to extend them to live in obedience to you ourselves in whatever way you call us to. And certainly those callings are distinct and different from that which is upon our father or grandfather or great-grandfather. But Lord, um, we have a responsibility equally to to accept that calling to obey and walk in it. And we pray you might give us the wisdom to do that. And also, you might help us to remember those that have brought us um, the testimony of your faithfulness over the 
many years between the founding of the church and these days of the church, that we might know our history and know the great men of our history that you have used mightily, that we might honor them and their lineage and, and uh, be responsive to them and not just forget and, and uh, disvalue them to the point of even destroying that lineage. Lord, help us to walk in those footsteps of faith that have come before us. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.